Welcome to Great Australian Lives with Joe Hall for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello and welcome to Great Australian Lives. This afternoon, it's an honour to be joined by Australian music royalty. He formed one of our leading Australian bands, the first to crack it on the international stage with a flurry of number one hits. A former Australian of the Year and ARIA Hall of Fame member, his music has become synonymous with Australians across all generations. I welcome Athel Guy. Thanks Hello, for- Joe. <laughs> uh, great to be with you. Thank you. It's... Uh- Nice to reflect on a few of those things as you get a little older. <laughs> <laughs> oh, at any stage of your life. And there's a whole lot to reflect on with you, isn't there? <laughs> well, there is. Uh, I was just running through some scrapbooks at home uh, for my daughter, really. Uh, and, uh, you know, for, for wherever she wants to put them in her library, she's going to have to have another room somewhere <laughs> built, I think. I couldn't believe how many I'd accumulated over the years. And as I sort of went back through it all, uh, it's it's an interesting feeling when you when you really go back to... To, to the start, which uh, was here in Melbourne with a little bebop group called mm. the Ramblers. Uh, and I got a job at Channel 9 because of that. And I, I was persuaded to take the job at Channel 9 by a guy that I was working with. I was studying accountancy, actually. And I had to go to him and say, uh, look, I've been offered this job at Channel 9. You know, my little group had been discovered down here at one of the little jazz clubs. And, and Norm Spencer and Tom Carroll, who were running in Melbourne tonight with Graham Kennedy, wanted to form a vocal group on the show. And I said to my boss, gee, I don't know what to do. He said, what do you mean you don't know what to do? I said, well, I've been offered this job at Channel 9, you know, with the group. And he said, why are you asking me? And I said, well, I'm halfway through my accounting degree. What will I do? He said, if you think I'm going to walk all over your dreams, you've got another thing coming. <laughs> now, if he'd have said to me, well, hang on a minute, that's didn't seem like a smart move, you know, you better you know, stay here and finish your degree. Well, who knows? There may never have been another group or the Seekers. Mm, indeed. So the reflections uh, are you know, uh, satisfying in terms of looking at what's happened to us over 50-odd years. It was the right move. No doubt. I'd love to go back to the start a bit later on, but let's talk about Georgie Girl, the musical, which, of course, as you know, I did a feature story for nine years and sat in on yes. the rehearsals um, yeah. last week. Um, how do you feel, uh, and I did ask you this at the time, about someone else playing playing you? Well, I, I've met Glaston a couple of times and I've met the kids uh, you know, a couple of times. They are fantastic. You know, they're, they're great singers, great great performers. And uh, to me, it really, now that I know him, it feels like I'm watching my son and his mates up on stage paying a tribute to his old man and his band. <laughs> they're good. They, they are terrific. How much um, input have you had in, in the story and, and um, moulding his character? Well, uh, a fair bit in one sense because uh, Pat, uh, Patrick uh, uh, Edgeworth, who wrote the book, is Judith's brother-in-law, and he picked up on her book really a lot of excerpts out of her book, uh, Colours of My Life, and and, uh, and then uh, he sent me a script. Uh, they were into about the third rough-up of an idea for a musical, and I had a look at it, and he said, well, look, I really need your input, you know, from the boys' point of view, and, you know, yeah, give me the drama, you know, give me the drama. <laughs> I said to Patrick... <laughs> I don't remember any hugely dramatic moments. I mean, all I remember is having a hell of a lot of fun, you know, and uh, uh, and just enjoying the music and uh, you know just having great success. I, you know, certainly uh, you know Judith had a lot of dramatic moments as we went through her life, you know, with a few health things and and the and the fear that she was overweight, uh, which really is a bit of a trigger point for the musical. Uh, but along the way, I've been able to. Uh, you know, dig out a few memories of moments that can be translated to a musical. And it's, you know, it's not a documentary. You know, it is simply not a run of all the success that we had, you know. Uh, that's not a that's not a, a musical for the theatre. 
Uh, and Patrick's done a great job now with the script, and it, it ducks and weaves and it tells the truth and uh, doesn't over-dramatise because there is some real drama in there. Uh, and I, it's, to me, the logical extension of all the other things that we've done. I, I think it's a great extension for the music because our music is so versatile. You know, it, it can be played as we started playing it, like as a little acoustic folk group in a coffee lounge, then onto the concert stage. You know, we're not too much of an embellishment, but you know, the keyboard players, some strings and percussion. And we, of course, toured with Andre Rieu, and what he did with the songs was unbelievable. It was such a magnificent feeling. You know, this, the orchestra swelling up under the middle eights of you know, I'll Never Find Another You, and the musicality uh, that, that gets extracted out of those songs is incredible. Now, these kids are on stage. We couldn't do it theatrically. That's not us. But they have to do it theatrically. Now, you, the worry you have is, will the songs <laughs> stand that sort of treatment and still retain that, yeah, the impact that they really have? And and they do. Uh, and you know, I've seen a few of the workshops, and uh, you know, it's about, it's all about the music. You know, the story's interesting, obviously. Uh, but I just love to hear the music. You know, now on stage, theatrically performed. It's, it sends it gives me goosebumps. Tell me about Georgie Girl, the song. Well, it was rather interesting. We'd had a lot of success, and we'd had success in America. And some the guys that were producing the movie Georgie Girl came to London, and uh, they wanted us to sing the uh, the track for the film. And uh, they bought us a couple of songs. So we were in our manager's office and they played us the songs and we all looked at each other. And our manager nearly had a heart attack because we sort of said, um, they don't really sound like us. <laughs> <laughs> and these high-powered American movie producers went, oh, wow, um, really? You know, um, What can we do? And we said, well, no, sorry. I, you, know, we, you know, we know what we sound like. We know the sort of music, you know, we really want to record. And uh, with great respect, you know, it's not us. So anyway, uh, we, we said farewell, they went away, and uh, two weeks later he got another transatlantic phone call. We want to come back and talk to the group. So back they came. Okay, who would you get to write it? So we said, well, you know, we've got a guy here who's already written four multi-million sellers for us, so why wouldn't he write it, Tom Springfield? So uh, they went, yeah, well, why didn't we think of that in the early days? You know, So over to Tom. And he got Jim Dale, who was a, uh, quite a well-known TV and movie performer in, uh, in England. Uh, and Jim actually wrote the lyrics. Tom produced the music. Uh, and we went into the studios, not even thinking about it as a pop song. Um, laid it down, but you did it in grabs for the movie. And I remember the first review that came out when it was, uh, it was released as a movie track and the reviewer said this is the perfect pop song and we went wow that's pretty good and we didn't release it in england as a single it came out on an album and they put it out as a single in america and wow off, off it went uh, number one over there we were asked that they were desperately trying to get us to america because it was nominated for an academy award and uh, we couldn't get there because we, we were we were playing a pantomime in Bristol for six weeks. <laughs> I think I was a little boy blue or something. So, yeah. Well, the show there's previews starting on December fifteen and then the world premiere on Tuesday, December twenty two at Her Majesty's Theatre. Let's have a listen to the title of the musical, Georgie Girl. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with Joe Hall for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to Great Australian Lives on 1377 3MP for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Joe Hall here with Apple Guy, star of The Seekers. 
Now, Afu, you were born in country Victoria, Colac. I was, yeah. I'm a Western District boy. Uh, I did come to live in Melbourne. I was born in 1940. Of course, the war was happening everywhere. And my grandparents then moved to Melbourne uh, and I lived in Caulfield with them for 10 years until uh, most of the family came back, uh, you know, 45 from the war years. And uh, my dad was in the Navy. I, I didn't get to know him very well. He, uh, he and my mum sort of split up. The war years sort of took uh, took their toll on their relationship. And I only ever met him two or three times. He went over to live in Tasmania eventually. Um, and I had a, you know, a great 10 years, really wonderful, before I... You know, we we started moving house a little bit after that. Uh, I tracked my dad down eventually, but sadly it was after he passed away over in Tassie, and I eventually found out, you know, it was like in those days. I mean, they, he was never spoken of in the household. No, he just wasn't. You know, my uncles came back, and they were part of the family group. And that was okay. I mean, I had a lovely family around me. It's, you know, I had everything I needed as a kid. I was well looked after, and it was great. Um, anyway, I, I, I suddenly found out that he was the bass player and the arranger in the Royal Australian Noble Band. Wow. And I never knew it. Uh, amazing set of circumstances. And he actually sold his double bass, as I found out as well, to Graham Bell's bass player in Graham Bell's jazz band when they went overseas. And I found it years later, actually. It had been, uh, it had been um, uh, well looked after and, and polished up and uh, repaired. And uh, a young man in Bendigo, his grandfather bought it from Graham Bell's bass player when they came back from Europe. So it's quite an amazing set of circumstances that I, I decided I wouldn't buy it back from this young man. In fact, he wouldn't sell it in the finish when he found out what it was. <laughs> now, I understand you went to Melbourne High where you were a pretty good sportsman. Uh, yes, my my uh, classroom was the the, the oval. <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, you know, the drop of a hat, I'd be down on the oval. It was either football, cricket, athletics or cadets. Yeah, I, I was... Uh, uh, instinctively just a good athlete. I never thought too much about it. I just ran and jumped and did all those usual things. And I was underage ass champion at school f- twice and uh, in the footy team. And, uh, you know, like just normal kid, I just lived for that. And uh, I I won a state high jump championship. And uh, one year I ran second to one of our Olympians, Colin Ridgway, in the high jump. Uh, and Colin, uh, Colin waited till everybody was eliminated. Uh, and I was sort of on the top of the tree at that stage of the game. But Colin, you know, <laughs> saw with his tracksuit on, <laughs> came out and just had one jump and went over at about six foot five, which is about four inches ahead of me. Uh, he was a lovely man, Colin. Uh, he went over to America, actually. He was a great athlete. No, I, uh, Did athletics. you ever think your calling was in sport? Uh, I did for a little while. Um, in those days, of course, you, you know, you didn't get coaching. I mean, you just you borrowed a pair of spikes and, you know, stuff and... You went out on the oval and you you just did it. You know, you really didn't have any coaching. It either happened instinctively. But there's a guy called Fran Stamfall who'd come out from Europe. Of course, the 56 Olympics galvanised a lot of us. You know, and Ron Clark was a mate of mine, a bit older, but, you know, Clark, he was our hero. You know, we used to go to Olympic Park uh, on the weekends where we ran during the summer and, you know, we couldn't wait for Clarkie's race. Great, great hero. Of course, coaching then became quite a serious thing. Same in football, really. I love my footy. I played down at St Kilda with with the under-19s. Uh, I had two half seasons because I came back for the second half with my old Melbourne High School old boys team. We were in A-grade amateurs. And I got signed up uh, by St Kilda for the, uh, when I went into the reserves when I was 18. And then uh, uh, my eyes went strange. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I tell you, contact lenses were no fun in those days. <laughs> no. Yeah, so they're my, no fun at no, any time. No, no. So my. <laughs> My uh, my ambition of being the next John Coleman went down the drain. <laughs> now, I understand um, Keith and Bruce, the two other members of the Seekers, both attended Melbourne High as well. Yes. In fact, uh, last weekend, myself and Keith and Bruce did a, a fundraiser concert uh, for Melbourne High for their new rowing sheds. We didn't know each other at school because we were a year difference between each of us as, as we rolled. Uh, but a great connection with the school. And we, do, we often pay tribute to the school, uh, which helped us all you know with our own sort of sense of identity it was a, a school where you knew the teachers sort of understood who you were where you were coming from any problems you had at home they seemed to instinctively know what was going on and uh maybe a bit different these days but they seem to have time for it still has a pretty good reputation i think yeah i think so yeah it's got a great buzz about it still well academically of course it's it's right up there but so it's, it was a great school so how did the seekers come to be well, I'd had my first little bebop group, the Ramblers, uh, which got me the job at Channel 9, uh, and I morphed out of that uh, with Keith then into... Uh, he'd had, he had her, his first little group at Melbourne High School uh, uh, called the Trinamics with two other students. And we got together, we met on a TV show, and we started talking music, and he and I decided to form another group, which was uh, the Escorts. Uh, as I've often said, you can't... Couldn't call a group that these days. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the male escorts. No, sorry, no, we're here to play music. Uh, and then that went on for a few years. Uh, the boys went professional. I didn't. I stayed. I didn't give up my day job. I stayed in Melbourne when they went up to Sydney for a while. When Keith came back, um, we got together again and decided we we love what was happening in the folky movement around the world. Pete Seeger's group, the Weavers in America, we loved. Uh, it had a girl singer by the name of Ronnie Gilbert, lovely voice. I went to work at the Clemens Group and and bumped into Bruce. Bruce was working there uh, you know, in the in the advertising division, and uh, I suddenly found out he was a guitarist and a banjo player. So he and I, with my set of bongo drums, used to go and play at parties wherever we'd you know we'd get an invite. And then uh, Keith joined in with us, and we found a young man by the name of Ken Ray. He had a beautiful tenor voice, so they were the, they they became the Seekers. The Seekers were originally four boys. Um, and uh, we tossed a coin one day to get a name. It was either going to be the Searchers or the Seekers, and thank goodness the coin came down Seekers because mm. we hadn't heard about the Searchers. They were <laughs> busy making it big in the UK. It <laughs> could have been a tragic mistake of fate. Um, and then Ken dropped out to get married, and we decided we really wanted to get a girl's voice. Uh, we're basically harmony singers, the three of us. We, you know, we, we Harmonics are in our heads because we're all in a sense, trained musicians, a bit orchestral in a way, I suppose. But we wanted that really strong lead voice to hang the harmonies on. We wanted a girl. And uh, there were two jazz singers in Melbourne, Judy Jarks and Judy Durham. And I knew Judy Durham's sister, Beverly. I'd met her at Channel 9. And uh, Beverly had said, oh, yeah, Judy's singing with Frank Trainer's jazz band. Why don't you go and have a listen? So I was about to do that. And uh, before I had a chance to do it, uh, this little person walked into my office. I was at J. Walter Thompson then in the advertising world. And... Uh, this little person walked into my office and said, hello, you're Athel Guy. I said, yes. She said, I'm Judy Durham. <laughs> I said, oh, hello. <laughs> she said, you're going to come and hear me sing. I said, yeah, I was. She said, well, when are you going to do that? And I said, well, I don't know. Why don't you come and sing with us tonight? So she came that night uh, to the Treble Clef. Bruce picked her up in his, uh, in his car, brought her down. And we just said, look, you sing something and we'll just bop in alongside of you. And it just worked like magic. Uh, it, you know, it was fantastic. Nothing's changed. Been exactly the same. Ever since. <laughs> Tell us about um, another you. That's your first big hit. 
Well, we had we couldn't get a recording deal in England. We'd done an album here for W and G, uh, courtesy of Ron Tudor, you know, the, the godfather of the Aussie recording industry, along with Bill Armstrong. And we took that uh, over to England with us, uh, and we got a great response in a sense because we did a lot of TV work and everything. But we couldn't get a recording deal. Anyway, we met up with Tom Springfield through Dusty, who became a great pal from very early days, and. Um, Ed said, look, you know, Tom, could you write a song for the group? I know we haven't got a deal, but, you know, it'd be nice, uh, you know, if you'd have a think about it. Because he had the Springfields and, you know, produced some, you know, beautiful hits for them. And they'd disbanded a little while beforehand. So Tom came in, uh, sat down and played uh, just, I remember the handwritten notes as he sat there with his guitar and, you know, there's a new one. Off it went. And we went, oh, yeah, that's, that sounds nice, Tom. It was quite different. And, I mean, if if we'd been a serious group at that stage, sticking with the folky stuff, we might have gone, oh, it's not not exactly sort of folky, but... Well, of course we didn't, because, you know, there's Tom Springfield and the, and the lyrics were great. So he left it to us to do all the arrangements, and Keith, who has a real genius for that, he could hear the harmonics in the song and did the arrangements and then we went into the Abbey Road studios where you know they were making history with the Beatles and everybody else um, and on a Saturday morning we recorded the two sides uh, I'll Never Find Another You and I'm, it was a gospel on the other side I'm, I'm not sure which one it was now I can't remember but uh, so we'd done the two in three hours and we went off to do a gig up in the north of England somewhere uh, and what Tom had done he'd supplied us with the basic ingredient of a, of a wonderful song that, that Keith transformed for the Seekers. He Seekerized it, you know, with his you know, beautiful musical skills with the harmonies and everything. Uh, and that took us over the Rubicon, you know. It took us from being a folky, bluesy, gospel-y group, which we were quite happy to be because we did all the TV, the folk TV programs, which were very big in Ireland and Scotland in those days. Um, took a little while because the BBC didn't play records unless they were hits. Um, and we did a lot of uh, uh, recorded programs for the BBC, which they, you know, was virtually live. Uh, but the the pirate radio st uh, stations picked it up. The ships picked it all up because there were a couple of Aussie DJs, which didn't do us any harm. <laughs> <laughs> it helps. Uh, yeah, and uh, it slumbered for a couple of weeks, and then it went uh, 24, 12, 4, uh, and we were in EMI Studios one day doing some PR for it because we were pretty excited at that stage of the game, number four. And I'll never forget it, because we were sitting in the room doing an interview, uh, just as we're sitting here talking now, and the door crashed open. You're number one, you're number one, you're number one. It's gone to the top. And we all went, um. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, How exciting. Uh, we all, it was fantastic. Yeah, great, uh, great feeling. So we, we all went off to Vary's Bar and celebrated. <laughs> well, here it is. I'll never find another you. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with Joe Hall for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're with Great Australian Lives. I'm Joe Hall and I'm chatting to Athel Guy, star of The Seekers, ahead of their stage show, Georgie Girl. Athel, you were acclaimed as the first Australian act to achieve real success in the UK and the US. It's yeah, a, a pretty big claim. Well, to... it... it uh... It didn't sort of strike us at the time. I mean, we were we were doing, you know, what we'd set out to do, which was have a good time, uh, play our music, uh, and suddenly, uh, you know, these things, uh, you know, were, were coming to pass where our success also influenced, uh, you know, quite a few Aussie bands that, you know, that they should 
have a go at it as well. I mean, uh, and I don't mind it being put this way, but I mean, if the Seekers could do it, why the hell couldn't we? And why couldn't they? And mm. uh, and eventually uh, they did. And um, I don't know. We, we'd had success in a, in another sense because after the uh, you know after the war years, uh, you know, Graham Bell's jazz band went over to Europe, you know, and played uh, you know uh, you know right around Europe when it was being sort of, you know, uh, refurbished and rehabilitated. Horry Dargy, of course, the Horry Dargy Quintet, uh, they went over to Europe as well in the, in the 50s. Um, and the musical scene was pretty much dictated in the late 50s, you know, rock and roll basically out of America, you know, Bill Haley and the gang, and, you know, they were working out of rhythm and blues and into rock and roll, and, you know, we were all sort of falling in love with that. And in England, uh, that's all they were hearing. Um, and in Australia, you, the recording industry was really in its infancy. I mean, radio stations were playing, you know, American music. And the odd cover would be done out here in the late 50s. And then, you you know, you, you, you got television starting to get into the, into the pop world. So uh, I think it was just a matter of timing for us. We were, we were lucky that the folk scene was, was booming in England. So in essence, you know, we we walked into a pretty good scenario there. Uh, vocally and, and musically in Australia, a group was never the one to you know be given a cover or a hit record. Really, uh, you were used as a backing group, and we backed three or four you know, big Australian hits before we jumped on the boat to go away. We had the we had the album of our own. I think it was just timing, you know, you in the right place at the right time. And, and you know, the R&B movement started to hit England, you know, with the Beatles and all the others, uh, you know, uh, paving the way, you know, the Liverpool sound. Um, and, it was, you know, that was all pretty exciting stuff. And, uh, and television in England switched right onto that as well. So there were just lots of openings that were happening. Uh, you know, it's the musical Olympics of the 60s, as I like to call it. You know, and we were there at the right time to compete. Um, you were the first group ever to reach number one on the UK charts with your first three singles. Yes. You were outselling the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Well, we did. I, from the moment, uh, I'll never find another. You cracked it, you know, right through the world of our own. The carnival's over, you know, through that amazing period into, uh, you know, midway through 66. Uh, 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 we were the top points scorer on the charts you know, above everybody. Uh, but again, you didn't even pick that up at the time. It's all on reflection. You know, we, we were too busy working. And again, as I said before, I mean, it sounded, you know, of course we, you know, we were totally thrilled by what was happening. But uh, I mean, I have to say, uh, our, our manager, who was such a level-headed person, he'd guided Frank Ifield, you know, through his career as well. And Frank had been with the same agency, and they were in England. It was still variety. They hadn't even gone to concerts in England. Regardless of the pop boom, no artists were going out and playing full concerts. Just wasn't happening. You were on the bill with six or seven or eight other acts, so you 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 never in England got to that stage where I mean, top of the bill meant yeah, sure we played the Palladium eventually, but we had eight other acts on the show with us. You know? But but you played Wembley, didn't you? Uh, yes, well we did. Now the 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 breakthrough there was '65 uh, when uh, we had I'll never find another you. Uh, a month or so after, you know, that had, you know, uh, hit the peak of the charts, uh, we were named by the NME uh, in their poll for that year, the industry peer group, as the top best new group, like in the world, from their point of view. And that was like winning an Academy Award, 
uh, and uh, you know it's trophies that we we treasure and of course because of that we were uh, invited on to the pole winners award concert at Wembley and that was one hell of an experience. I mean, just about every act that was in the top ten in the world was on that show. And the Beatles. And yeah, the Beatles, Rolling the Stones, Stones, the Kinks, the Who, uh, Dusty Springfield, Silla Black. You, know, you name every one of them that were in the charts. And uh, this little Aussie band that had just had I'll Never Find Another You were invited on. Uh, and we sang I'll Never Find Another You. And then I was able to say, and I've got a film clip of it, uh, which we use in our show from time to time, uh, with me saying that. We just recorded our... We just recorded our second single, <laughs> uh, written for us by Tom Springfield, and we really hope it's going to be just as successful as I'll Never Find Another You. Of course, we then go into a world of our own. And the lovely thing on the day, John Lennon uh, walked past our dressing room in the morning when we were rehearsing. We were It was a dress rehearsal, but we were inside. We didn't know. He went up to our manager who was standing outside, and he walked up to our manager with a big grin on his face and said, Hello, they're not a bad little band, you know. And then he says, but they're all there to see us. Watch <laughs> <laughs> to himself. <laughs> anyway, he had a laugh, couldn't wait to tell us. And, uh, you know, we we, uh, we passed like ships in the night anyway. Uh, for, Did you meet them? Uh, very casually, like, mm. as I say, ships in the night stuff, like with all the, all the groups. Mm. And they're pretty well protected uh, in many ways, we, you know, for security and everything. Anyway, the nice thing was three weeks later, a world of our own knocked ticket to ride off the top of the charts. <laughs> <laughs> so we got our own back. Fantastic. Yeah. Now, tell Tell me, um, in 67, the Seekers returned to Australia and there, I, I remember images of, I've been looking at them putting the story together on the um, on the rehearsals for the show. Yeah. Um, 200,000 people at the bowl. Oh, staggering. Amazing day. I, Norm Spencer rang us from Channel 7 on the morning and said, I think you better come down to the studios and see what's happening at the bowl. And at that stage of the game, there were 100,000 people there and we were filming uh, the Seekers Down Under, which turned out to be a spectacularly successful TV show for a whole variety of reasons. But... He said, I've just been able to get hold of a chopper. We've got to get an aerial shot because they hadn't planned for that in the filming. Yeah? Mm. Said, Why would you do that? They, admittedly, they had 100,000 the year before when we did it, but no one expected what was going to happen this day. And it was amazing. But they, they stopped counting heads after about 100-odd thousand and, and counted them from the cars because they stopped the cars at St Kilda Junction. As a roadblock all the way back to St Kilda Junction. Well, then the bowl in those days didn't have that big ridge, mm. so in a sense, you know, you could you could see the sea of faces. So by the time the show came around, I'm glad Norm did that because if we'd have walked out to that crowd, you know, I mean, the palpitations were enough when we you know, when we finally walked out. Uh, but the moment the music starts, uh, you're into it. I, we didn't do a long show. Yeah, you know, which is a bit of a shame. And we, when we came off, how long was it? Well, it was probably no more than half an hour from us because oh, wow. it was music for the people. Mm-mm. But they were all, you know, everyone there, everyone was there to see the to see the group. How did that the, feel in your hometown? Such a big crowd. It must have been. Oh, the greatest, the greatest welcome you could you could ever get, and I, and so many people remember it. I mean, <laughs> it's not exactly like when we went overseas on the fair fair sky. I think it was. And all the people that we've met after that, well, if we'd have had that many people on the fair sky, would have sunk. The people that like to tell you they're on the boat. But, but every, every time we meet people, everywhere we go, there's someone that was at the bowl. Mm. And yesterday I had to... Probably was, a lot of our listeners. Well, they're out there, yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's fantastic. And I think what it did... I. And then because of The Seekers Down Under and then the next year The World of the Seekers in the film, that bonded us into the Australian way of life, plus the songs, of course. There were so many things that happened to us that Australians related to 
obviously kids going overseas, making a good, knocking off the others off the top of the chart. And there's so many really lovely things they all still remember, and apart from the individual songs that mean so much to them all, we sort of, you know, it's a lovely feeling. We're part of the wallpaper, the musical wallpaper in, in so many Australian homes. And same overseas, really. I mean, the UK has never forgotten us. We did our 50th anniversary tour of the UK and sold out everything. Two sold outs at the Royal Albert Hall mm. 50 years later, and you go... <laughs> Well, it's the music, you know, it yeah. is the music. It's fantastic. Now tell me, um, I'd like to play your favourite song. What, what is that? Uh, well, I can <laughs> I can never go past Morning Town Ride. I, I, because we found it literally the first night we opened our mouths together because it was on an album by the Weavers. And when we decided to get a, a girl in the group and Judith was going to join us, Keith got her the Weavers album uh, and, and hearing the beautiful voice of Ronnie Gilbert, which she loved. So she knew what we were looking for. It's very hard for solo singers to suddenly do a groupie. You know, it's a very, very different way of singing, mm. you know, very different disciplines. Uh, and Judith's a real perfectionist. But anyway, she fell in love with the album. And there were two songs on the album that we actually sang that night because we knew them both. And one of them was Morning Town Ride. And it was written back in the mid-50s. Now, why we were the ones to take it out, you know, and put it in the charts... Again, you know, like you couldn't manufacture anything that happened to this group. I mean, to have that song slumbering away, you know, and uh, then we recorded it on an album and then someone heard it and went, wow, this could make a good Christmas single. And, God, it did, you know. And I, I, I won't hold you up here this morning with the stories, but, uh, you know, we, we never told my daughter much about the group as she grew up and she came home from school one day and I was always ready to answer the questions you know, she's about 12 and she came home one day and she said oh we learned a great song at school today dad and I said oh what was that she said oh morning town right so oh yeah it's a nice song she said you used to sing that didn't you and I said yes I did you know no more questions though she went up to her room so I went oh well anyway five minutes later we got a phone call from some friends of ours and their daughter was at school with Lister and a similar story she came and said oh we learned a lovely song at school today and they said what was that morning town right oh yeah it's a lovely song isn't it you know Alyssa Guy's father used to sing Morning Town, right? Oh, yeah, that's right, with his friends, you know. <laughs> and then she said, you know, Alyssa Guy's father used to be Athel Guy. <laughs> <laughs> <Which, laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Identity is slipping a little bit there. <laughs> well, here it is, Morning Town Ride. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with Joe Hall for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Joe Hall here with star of The Seekers, Apple Guy. Let's talk about the breakup. Yes, well, it was, um, I think it was pretty inevitable. I, we'd come to a stage with our music where people were sending us songs to record that, like, you know, the, the son of Morningtown Ride, the daughter of George Gill. I mean, they, they were all samey, 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 samey. And when you're in the pop world, you, what you're thinking of, because you get locked into this, oh, God, what are we, how are we going to find another hit? And we'd said no to one or two songs that we probably should have said yes to that Tom had for us. Uh, a bit of indecision. And um, there, were, there were no problems within the group at all. You know, never were, never have been, never will be. But we are the north, south, east and west. You know, we're, we're four completely different people. Uh, and it is the music that brought us together. And, and we, we, we were very protective of our sound and our image in those days. So, not overly so, but we knew what we represented to people and we knew what our sound represented, the, the, the songs. And we just, you know, we, we couldn't find any songs that would take us to that next level. And we knew that our audiences didn't want us to, to be contemporary. 
you know, they saw us in a bit of a pigeonhole. And unless we found other songs, I mean, we didn't realise what we'd created, quite frankly. You know, we, we didn't know the legacy that was going to be there. No, it's not such a bad thing. Uh, and we were getting towards, in our late 50s, we'd had five years of non-stop, absolute non-stop work. And I, had, I hadn't had a holiday. And uh, neither of the boys. I mean, Keith had a short one when he got married. But like, it's all those circumstances. And, you know, we all had other things that we we wanted to do as people. And Judith, certainly. She really had uh, to face a few dilemmas. I mean, that of a, a young woman growing up, uh, no serious romantic attachment. You know, the fact that she would have liked to have had, a, you know, a relationship and a family life. And equally, there are a lot of pressures on her from outside people, and her parents included. And I'm not being nasty about this. Uh, a lot of people, you know, kept saying, oh, you're the star of the show. You should be doing solo things. And, and happily, we would have said, sure. Oh, she did. She recorded a great song on her own. Didn't make the charts. So proof of the pudding. It was one of Tom Springfield's loveliest songs, The Olive Tree. And she owns up to this herself. I'm not telling tales <laughs> out of school. She would, you know, if she was sitting here telling you, she'd say this. And, um, and rightly, uh, she was a bit boxed in because we couldn't find the songs that were going to take the Seekers to that next level. We found them when we got together again. Some of Bruce's great songs, you know, Keep a Dream in Your Pocket, I'm Australian. Well, half our show these days is new material, but we couldn't find it then. So it was time for a bit of a holiday. I mean, we, you know, in that sense, it took 20-odd years to get us back together again, but that's because we're all doing our own thing. So she was under pressure, and we, we knew that, and we always agreed that if anyone wanted to go sideways or, you know, leave the band, they'd give it six months' notice. Simple as that. And she did, and it was upsetting for her, but, you know, we understood. There was, there was no rancour. I mean, there was, you know, there was huge disappointment, but, you know, we we wouldn't have known how to correct the imbalance for her. She had to find out for herself, uh, as each of us had to find out for ourselves what we were going to do with the rest of our lives. We we quite simply didn't see ourselves as being a group that was going to be still around in 50 years' time. We didn't see ourselves that way. Bruce went off, had a great songwriting career, and he had to come home anyway. His mum, sadly, was very ill and, and you know, eventually passed away. I had other things that I didn't have anything specific in mind, but I was very interested politically in the scene in Australia. Andrew Peacock was a great mate of mine. And I'd been with the young libs before I went overseas. Uh, anyway, all those things in, in, in the great uh, the great washer of life. Uh, uh, you know, we, we had some really nice farewells. We didn't understand, and she certainly didn't, as she says often. She did not understand the heartbreak of our... That it was going to break the hearts of so many fans. And it did, didn't it? it did. People were devastated. No, no it did. I, you know, and, and we all started to wake up to that after a while. But, and all we can say to them is, well, you know, we we apologise. So the nice thing is, though, uh, when we, the, the moment we, the moment we broke up, people started trying to put us back together again. So there's no greater tribute, you know, to the band than you can have. Now, along the way, of course, I was the one that would get the phone calls, like major occasions, you know, Australia Day, government functions, expos, carols by account, you name it. I would get the phone calls out, could you please get the original Seekers together again? But no, Judas overseas in Europe playing jazz with us, with Keith living in London, Bruce in America. Anyway, two, three times we did, and we did it for major reasons. 
uh, in the seventies. We had a beautiful girl, uh, Louisa Whistling, came and sang with us, and we and we actually did two albums. Bruce had some great songs, and John Farrow, who's Olivia's producer, they all got their heads together. Oh, we want to do an album. I'm in Parliament at that stage of the game. I'm going, uh, excuse me, I do have a job. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I took a couple of weeks out, and we recorded a couple of, and the albums went gold. We had a number one record with the Sparrow song with Louisa, but it wasn't seamless. And, and we went, that's fun, good o. Left it all alone. Eighty-eight, we were asked, to, amongst other you know, major functions. Anyway, Rick Birch got us in the finish, myself and Keith and Bruce. Judith couldn't come back, but he wanted us to do the close of for eighty-eight Expo bicentenary in Brisbane. I just want you to sing the carnival is over. You know, I ring Judith. Oh no, she can't make it. Came back to me, said, "Who would you sing it with?" And I said, "Well, get Julie Anthony." I didn't know her. I'd seen her on TV. I thought she was fantastic. So I thought, you know, he won't get her. So <laughs> two hours later, he was back. She'd love to do it. That's great. So anyway, so we met up with Jules and uh, we, we, we simply did that. And we had a lot of fun with her. And uh, she insisted we do some some concert and cabaret work with her that she was booked for. But she wanted, she said, nah, come on, you guys, you know, got to get back on the stage and sing. So we, we did that with Julie for a year. Again, not seamlessly, but, you know, the odd thing, which was good fun. Uh, and then um, we had a we had I think it was we had a carols by candlelight that we were booked to do and she couldn't do it she was pregnant with a second bub, and Karen Knowles joined us for for a couple of major mm. gigs she did that and we did an expo, uh, and that was lovely because people wanted Seekers music you know if you couldn't get the original grip they still wanted Seekers music as I said it's all about the music great tribute to those fantastic songs and then. We were all back in Melbourne at one stage, uh, and uh, I got a phone call from Keith's cousin, uh, who said, "Oh, look, I've spoken to Judith, and you guys are all in town. Why don't we all have dinner?" So we did up in Turek, went and had dinner together. It was a fabulous reunion. We didn't talk music, we, we really didn't. We sat around, we yacked away for hours and hours, and Judith's manager was there with her, a guy by the name of uh, John Kovac. So anyway, I got a call, you know, a week later, and. Oh, it'd be lovely. We haven't been together for 25 years. Let's go and do a concert. <laughs> well, you know, well, that's been seamless since then. That's 1993. So, so how was that? How was the reunion? Fantastic. Unbelievable. Uh, it, it, it was quite incredible. Uh, I'll never forget. The, uh, the, the concerts went on for months um, and, and could have kept rolling. But, you know, we, we did a reunion once every couple of years. But the first night at... Uh, Hamer Hall, uh, friends of mine all attest to it. Uh, well, I'll, I'll come back one thing. We we didn't know how to start the show. We were a bit stuck. Because usually in concerts you walk out playing and you start singing. George Fairfax, one of our doyens in the arts here, we asked George to come around and talk to us because he, he did a little dialogue over some video for opening the show, which is really beautiful. And we said, now, George, we don't know how to open the show. don't know what song to open the show with. you know. And he said, well, hang on a minute. Tell me what you've got in mind. And we went, oh, this is what we've got in mind. I said, no, 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 you're not going to do that. He said, I will add an introduction onto the end of that video that's you know, chronological little rundown of the seekers. It was a lovely little piece. He said, and you will walk out onto the stage and you will do nothing. And we went, hey, no, what do you mean do nothing? He said, you will walk out onto the stage on the introduction and you will do nothing. And we all went, what is that? He said... You will stand there because if you do start playing, you are going to rob them of something they've all been waiting for for so long, and that is to welcome you back. And we went, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Well, my God. I mean, we walked out there and the, and the place just absolutely, you know, 
They were blowing the roof off it. I had a couple of my friends, well, I had a lot of friends there on the night, uh, and they said it was the most unbelievable experience to be there, you know, for that welcome. Uh, I'm guessing it was a standing ovation. Oh, yeah. Uh, It was amazing. Anyway, the lovely thing was my my little daughter, who, you know, I mentioned a bit earlier, Mm. and she would have been uh, 14 at the time, and she was there with my wife. Anyway, the show finished and we came off stage, and she came running around the corridor. Eyes bulging out of her head, you know, and she said, Dad, Dad, she said, she looked at me with big eyes, looking at me, she said, They really love you. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, Yeah, well, they love the music, though, that's really good. Anyway, the tag to that is a little later in the night at the reception, just in one of the back green rooms. I'm standing there talking to one of the journalists, one of the papers, and Alyssa was standing with me, so I. You must be so proud of your dad and you know the group and what they've done and he's done this and something else and she's looking up at this journalist and he stopped and she said, "No, he's just my dad." <laughs> of yeah. course, you're just so a you dad. Yeah. yeah, back to work, folks. Please. Tell me about um, I'm Australian. Well, Bruce uh, and his friend Dave Newton uh, came up yeah, with the concept for I'm Australian, and it was more as a sort of anchor piece for. Uh, perhaps a foundation uh, and something that would you know bring Australians together and be extended out into the community in a variety of ways and uh, they researched it really well you know because to write a song about your country without getting a little bit jingoistic is almost impossible and I've heard a lot of them and uh, I won't mention any names but <laughs> some of them are just a bit mm, yeah. <laughs> nice melody but uh, I'm not sure about the lyrics um, and when I heard it the first time, and they, they, they'd spoken to just about every cross-section of the community that you could, and certainly you know, some of our Indigenous friends you know, were very helpful as well. So they did their homework, and then the first time I heard it off the back of a demo, and just said to Bruce, I, I think you've nailed it. And uh, then we we worked it into our you know, own shows. We recorded a version of it. And the proof of the pudding's out there now. You know, it's sung in schools and major occasions. Many people um, uh, suggest it should be our national anthem. What do you think about that? Well, uh, it's certainly a national song. And uh, the chorus... Uh, the chorus is pretty universal getting away from our national anthem because we have sung it around the world as well, you know, right through the UK, and, I, and that's the way we present it. You know, the verses are very Australian, but obviously, but the chorus is a universal, you know. The, uh, and it look, it, it could be, without getting into the debate, uh, it would certainly be a contender, and maybe Bruce would have to think about how you would format the thing uh, because, you know, one verse or two verses, who knows, for anthems. Um, it's it it would be very competitive. I quite like the fact that it can stay where it is in our concert because we wouldn't be singing a national anthem in our concert. No. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, let's have a listen. I am Australian. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with Joe Hall for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're with Great Australian Lives, celebrating the life of Athel Guy. So, Athel, what's what's on your bucket list? What haven't you haven't you done that you'd like to do? Uh, it's a very interesting question. Um, I, I sort of keep avoiding it like the plague in a sense. Uh, I, I often just like to get up in the morning and let it come at me. 
because it does. Um, out of the blue, I'm still connected with some really nice organisations who, you know, who know that I'll pop out and do whatever they ask me to do. Uh, what are some of those? Oh, Kids Undercover, Tea Up for Kids, The Golfing Fraternity, Heart Kids at the Children's Hospital, uh, Relay for Life. My daughter is uh, the marketing manager at the Cancer Council. And uh, I like to connect with them. And, and again, not a seamless thing. And, and people don't like to bother you too much either, which is a really nice thing. But years ago, uh, I, used to, I used to joke about, well, I think I was in my 60s and people would go, well, what are you doing now? And I go, well, I still haven't decided what I want to do when I grow up. You know, <laughs> that's still pretty true. But I did say to a mate of mine not so long ago, no, I'm in my 70s now. And I, so I, I've decided not what I want to do, but what I want to be. And he said, what's that? I said, useful. <laughs> so... My phone still rings often enough uh, to get me motivated to come out and, and uh, help. Uh, I don't. I've steered clear for a long time now of of, of working with committees uh, as such. Uh, but I, I, I love to work with groups that are well organised. Uh, and no respect to any, no disrespect, sorry, to any of the others. But you know, when when you spread yourself a bit too thinly, you you know the, the value decreases a bit. You can't can't get the focus. You know, if I'm going to do something, I really want to focus on it and get it right and be of some value. Um, and the, the organisations that I'm connected with are, are wonderfully organised, and and they won't ring you unless it's very specific, and they can give you the brief, and you, you can go and do it. You know, like speak at a public function or turn up and, you know, cut a ribbon. I don't care what it is. It doesn't really matter. Uh, I do chair my son-in-law's company, which is uh, uh, an e-marketing website development company, which is right on the cusp of, you know, you know the, the, all the breakthroughs in today's technology. So, And it's fascinating to work with them. I don't understand what they do half the time, but I know <laughs> a bit old for that. But I but I know the business side, so all the business ethics and everything else, and the political scenario still intrigues me. And uh, I, I often get uh, you know a call to arms there to sort of come to a function and speak, you know, about the state of state of the nation and uh, politics, especially uh, you know, without getting too one-sided about it. Uh, I, I just like to stay involved. I, I'm not good at sitting at home doing nothing. I can't stand that. You know, that's why, you know, if it doesn't come at me by 11 o'clock in the morning, I then go out and find it. <laughs> <laughs> Did the Seekers still sing together? Uh, well, we finished the 50th uh, late last year in New Zealand, which was uh, which was absolutely fantastic, you know, given that Judith had a cerebral hemorrhage right mm. in the middle of the, of the Australian mm. tour. I, we just agreed years ago that we would never say never again so we leave that out uh i'm thinking it probably would be more you know one-off but again you see if you have to gear up for a one-off you might as well gear up for a whole concert tour (laughs) because there's no difference so Mm. it's a a bit of a dilemma and i think right at the moment uh uh, you know i've used this line often lately i i go back to 94 sorry no 2004 when we thought we'd finished all the reunions in hong kong we finished everything there, and it was a case of it doesn't get any better than this. This is lovely. We had some lovely reunions, you know, the Seekers music's out there. And then, of course, uh, we got uh, a phone call from Andre Rieu in our office one day, and Graham Simpson, who looks after our bits and pieces, the phone rang, and Graham picks it up and uh, says, hello, hello, is that Mr. Simpson? Yes, yes, Graham says, hello, it's Andre Rieu here. And Graham says, oh, yeah, sure, Andre, how are you? you know? <laughs> he goes, no, no, it's uh, Andre Rieu here. So he goes, oh, okay. So uh, yeah, we did the tour with Andre, and of course, and I said again after that, well, 
gee, that's taken it to another level. It doesn't get any better than this. And then we started talking about our 50th, and we thought, well, we'd have a, we'll have a 50th birthday party, which we did uh, down uh, in the foyer at Hamer Hall, which is lovely, yeah. Birthday cake, the whole thing. And that was really lovely. And then, of course, the whole... Then uh, the tour was planned. And we went, oh, this will be interesting. But then again, you know, at the end of it, you say, well, it doesn't get any better than that. Now, I don't think you can keep saying that, because now with Georgia Girl... It doesn't get any better than this. The tribute that the group is going to be paid uh, with the script the way it's written, the performers, the buzz that's around. Yes, it's Melbourne and, and it's, you know, it's this little, you know, homemade, organically grown Aussie band, uh, you know, being replicated on stage. Well, it's, it, it can't get any better than that, Joe. So I think um, it, w- w- saying, you know, that we'll never say, you know, never again... Uh, I think this time we'll just enjoy the run of Georgie Girl and uh, let it take care of itself. Well, I can't wait to see it and I can't wait to see you at the premiere on December 22nd. Great fun. And it's a lovely Christmas present. So for all of our listeners out there, go to the website www.georgiegirlthemusical.com forward slash. Thanks so much for joining me, Great Athel. pleasure, Joe. Lovely to be with you today and hello to all our friends out there. It's been wonderful chatting and it's a, it's a wonderful life. Thank a you. great Australian life. I've had a good time. Don't forget you can follow the program on Twitter at Great Oz Lives for upcoming interviews and any you may have missed. This has been Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Catch us next week from 5 on 1377 3MP as we discover another great Australian life.